0: We're beginning this week the Sefer Oris Hatora in earnest, and I would highly recommend that it's, even if your Hebrew is not great, if you're following along at home, or if you're attending this year in person, it's really not a bad idea. It's a few shekel, I think it's like 30 shekel. Uh, you get five books in one, all things that hopefully over the years we'll be able to study with, with Rav Cook for many years to come. And... Um, and the Sefer Oris begins with a little bit of a haktamah, a little bit of an introduction, which is amazing because it's almost as if you ever have those friends where you have a conversation with them and you haven't spoken to them for, you know, a good several months, sometimes even years, and you bump into them and you just pick up with whatever the last conversation was. So of Cook here, like a good friend, picks up almost like on the exact same trend of thought that he was talking about 14 years earlier, in the letter that we ended off with last time. And uh, now it's 14 years later and the Sefer is being published. Now I'll, I'll remind everybody that the first three chapters of the Sefer Oros HaTshuva are a standalone work that Rav Kook calls the Igera Sachuva, the Chuva letter. And the following chapters that we have uh, really are the hard work of his Talmidim and his son, Rav Tzvi Cook, who basically just went through all of, you know how many unpublished, Pieces of paper there are, you know. All rabbis have their pockets filled with papers and their, you know, pens and and, and sticky notes, you know, in their, in their pockets. Rav Kook was just a ma'yan hamizgaber, a never-ending stream. And there are thousands and thousands of little notebooks of Rav Kook's chidushim on everything. They're still putting out Rav Kook's chidushim on Shas, on the Agaratas of Shas. We only have a few small volumes, but they're still putting out, and. Um, so the rest of the Sefer is really just his students and, uh, and his son going through and, and kind of putting together the pieces and creating this amazing, beautiful tapestry, this, this blanket of tshuva that we could wrap ourselves in. So this we do have from Rav Cook's pen. This is the introduction to the Igara Chuva, and serves as kind of an introduction to the entire Sefer Orus Chuva, which I'd like to, uh, to begin this evening. And we'll go slowly. The whole... Um, the whole thing that we're going to be reading tonight is just this one small page, this one small paragraph. But as usual, Rav Cook's language is so rich and is so beautiful, and he's touching on so many different things. So we'll just go slowly and we'll enjoy ourselves. So Rav Cook writes, Ani milcham milchama Pnimis. It's been now for some time, we know 14 years, that I've been fighting this inner war, this inner battle, and some of the Commentaries on Orissa HaTshuva. Rav Aviner has a beautiful commentary on Orissa Some other Talmidim of Rav Tsuyeh have beautiful commentaries on Orissa So, in one of the commentaries, I believe it's in Rav Aviner, he quotes from Rav Cook in a different place. Rav Cook says, Sometimes a person feels that they're writing because they have the, the strength to write, or they feel like they get up to say something because they, they feel like they have the strength to say something, you know? Like I'm a person who could say something and therefore should say something, and we get up and say it. So if Cook writes in one place, specifically talking about writing about tshuva and writing about these kind of loftier, more umbrella hot button issues in, in Yiddishkeit, so if Cook writes, I'm not writing and I'm not speaking, I'm not going on this tour, if Cook literally went all around Eretz Yisrael on a, on a tshuva tour, you know? Like Yishai Rebo in Kaysaria, Yishai Rebo here, you know, like Kolakavod. And he's also on a Tshu vator, You know, Avram Fried on his Tshu with Aviv Geffen. But um, Rav went on a Tshu vator. He went to all the Moshevim and he went to all the Kibbutzim. And he said, the reason I'm doing this is not because I have the strength to speak. He said, it's because I don't have the strength anymore to stay silent. I'm just, there's a Milchama Pnimit that's going on inside of me that I need to, I need to say this. I need to get this off my chest because... These are trade secrets that the Jewish people have been holding very close to the cards close to the chest for so long, and the time has come to reveal this to the world. And some of the things that we're going to say, the first chapter, which uh, or not, probably next week, we'll begin with. the first chapter, Gar of Cook in so much trouble. The whole first chapter, at least the beginning of the first chapter of Cook talks about the, the first step of tshuva is making sure that you exercise and you eat healthy we stop smoking, and we stop, you know, and all these physical things, which now is so obvious. But you imagine, at the time that Rav Cook was writing, in, you know, 1911 or whatever, when he was writing these, these ideas, and he was saying, he was saying, you know how holy it is that the Jewish people, that there are these chevra, who, they don't keep Shabbos they don't keep kosher, but they're exercising, they're becoming muscular. You know, and people are thinking, are you crazy? Rav Kook got in so much trouble, he wrote in, in one place, in the Sefer Oros, that Rav Kook said, that even though, of course it's true, that the ruach, the the spirit, if you will, of the old Yeshuv, meaning all the rabbis and the people who are, you know, still in the game from their great grandparents, who have not this funny, you know, if you ever walk into someone's house, you see like there's pictures on the wall, and they have like, you know, bearded rabbi, bearded rabbi, bearded rabbi, beard gone, you know, one generation. Now, a lot of us have this kind of like, so Cook split the world into there was the old Yeshuv, those people who kind of like. They kept the bearded rabbi thing going on the whole way down the line, and that's just a very tongue-in-cheek way of saying, you know. But it's much more than the externals, um, and the new Yeshua, which are these people who said, you know, enough with the gullus mentality. We have to Jewish we have to stand up for us, be strong, we have to be a nation like every other nation. And Rav Kook said, of course it's true that the people who maintained a certain fidelity to the old world way of doing things, of course their ruach, their spirit, is higher than the new yeshuv, the people who have thrown off the chains of, of the technicalities of religion in search for something grand and something, you know, that, that seemed more universal. And in doing so through a Shabbos and Kashras and all these things. Of course their ruach is, is greater. But it's also true that the nefesh, which means the more embodied part of the soul, the nefesh of the new yeshuv is greater than the old yeshuvs. The ruach of the old yeshuv might be greater. The ruach of those old yidin who stayed true to Torah and were continued learning, continued steeped in, in the details of, of halachic observance, their ruach is greater. But the nefesh, the body of the Jewish people, of those people who maybe they threw off certain responsibilities, but there is what to learn from them also that those who are maybe gedolim beruach Israel need to learn from the nefesh Israel of the others. And people just cut out that one line that said, the nefesh of the, you know, the, the Yafo soccer team is greater than the rabbis learning in Mayasharim, and people just put that on or on billboards, and if Cook was, you know, yeah, people went but you have to understand that, even not out of context, even in context, where if Cook was saying, there was a Milchama pnimis that was inside of him there, if Cook said, We're moving from a place of an exiled way of looking at the world to a new way of looking at the world. And Rav Kook, here, I guess this is one last word of introduction before we start to really read about this Milchama Panimus. The way I think about this all the time, you know, there's a story about Rav Tzvi Hersh Zidditchav. Rav Tzvi Hersh of Zidditchav was known as the, the Sar HaZohar. He was the prince of the Zohar. Already from a young age, he was renowned uh, both within the Hasidic world and within the world of the Vilna and his students as an, uh, uh, an expert, in the, in the Kabbalah, in, in the Zohar, in the Kisve Arizal. He was a remarkable genius of a person, in Nigla and Mr. Both. And there was a particular meeting that took place between Ritzvi Hirsch and the Ketzos Achoshen. The Ketzos is one of the great goonim in, in Lambdus, you know, the Sefer of Ketzos HaKoshin is considered. There are certain yeshivas where, like, if you don't know these ten Ketzos HaKoshins, like, you're, you're an so You need to know at least these. You know, these are like the, the bread and butter of Lambdus, of learning, like, uh, Talmud with a, with a fine-tooth comb, specifically in monetary law. So the Ketzos HaKoshin one time met with Rav each other. He bumped into him and he said, tell me something. He said, you're, you're a genius. I see you're a genius. And I know that you're part of the camp of the Balshemtov and his students. So tell me, what did the Baal Shem Tov bring to the world that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who all camps, whether you're Hasidic or Mesnagadik or whatever you are, Svartic or Ashkenazic, everybody looks to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as one of the, great, uh, of the great rabbis of all time. So Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and what he revealed in the Zohar Kadosh and the Arizal, what he did, which also no one has a problem with the Arizal, so, in the mystic tradition, they already did the work. What did the Baal Shem What was like the chiddush of the Baal Shem? What did he even do? So, Chavar, said to the Ketzos Achoshen, he said, "I'll give you a parable." He said, "There was once a man who came and he was telling everybody about this amazing bird that lived in this tropical island. And the thing about this bird is that it looked and sounded exactly like a human being. Its face had these very human characteristics." And it could speak, not like just a parrot or a parrot. It could say novel, creative things. It could have an actual conversation with it, not just the things that it memorized. And people thought he was crazy. And he he described this bird that he had once encountered. Came along a second fellow. And the second fellow said, I'm going to go to the island. I'm going to go see this bird for myself. And not only that, but I'm going to bring with me someone who can, you know, an artist who will be able to bring uh, digital dream uh, art with me and on a tablet, we'll make a picture of the, of the bird and I'll make a few you know, voice recordings or in the original telling of this story and I'll write down in the notebook some of the witticisms that the bird conveys and, uh, and I'll bring it back to the people. That's what he did. And everyone said, it's interesting but it's a little strange. You know, this is you know, a bird with a human head and it's a whole bizarre thing. Until finally there was a third person who went to the island and said, enough with this, I'm just going to go bring the bird back. I'll bring it to the people and show it to them what it is. So if Tzvi Her-Zirchav said to the Ketzos and he said, you know, Rashbi, Rabbi Shem Bar he told the whole world that there's something called the Rabbon Shalom. And he described the Rabbon Shalom and how the Rabbon Shalom interacts with the world through a series of pipelines, spiritual pipelines, these emanations, these divine emanations called the Spheros, and he was describing it. And it was something that was so out there that it needed to be kept as a secret doctrine, you know, for all this time. And then the Rizal came and he said, you know, I'm going to do a little bit more. I'm going to actually make this into like a picture that people can, can sink their teeth into and I'll describe a little further and, and I'll, I'll make it into something that is digestible, at least to some people. Until the Baal Shem Tov came and he said, I'm just going to bring their bone shalom to the world. I'm going to bring Hashem to people. I'm going to show them how this kind of out there Kabbalistic idea is in their meal that they're eating right now. It's in their business meeting that they're having. So when I think about what Rav Cook is doing here, there were people who spoke about Chuva before of Cook. The Rambam wrote about tshuva. Rabbeinu Yona wrote about Chuva, The Meiri wrote about tshuva. There are books about tshuva. The Bal Tani wrote about tshuva. And there are different dargas that the Jewish people underwent in going through this world of Chuva and, and having it brought down to the world. And of Cook was saying, I'm fighting this... I'm fighting this inner battle... I just want to bring tshuva to the world finally. I'm done with talking about here's how you do it, and here's the theoretical, and if you did this Avera, then you know say this five times, and fast this number of times. I want to bring the world of tshuva to people. Bring the bird back, and have people be actually able to see it and to feel what it is to do tshuva. But on the other hand, there's a reason why that bird was kept hidden for a long time. There's a reason why tshuva was kind of put to the side in, in terms of all of the... In some of the ways that we spoke about in the previous two shirin, in the way that tshuva touches on free will, and in the way that one of the uh, one of the, chashuve, uh, the ladies who, who joined us in the share came over to me after and said, and said, you know, but isn't this a dangerous idea? This idea that, like, it's all good, and even your mistakes are good, and... You know, isn't that a license to do that? And it's very Morkav. It's very complex. And, um, and she's right. Um, so we need to make sure that we're learning this in a way that we have a good guide. And Baruch Hashem, we have an amazing guide in Irv Kuk. So this war that he's fighting, this internal war, he says, <speaking in Hebrew> Am I Every waking thought, everything that I'm doing, is, yeah, you know, I learned Torah a little bit, and then I think more about tshuva. How do we bring the world to tshuva? And then, you know, I'll go, and I'll, if cook was the a, was a chief rabbi he had, you know, important. I, so, and then I, I go, and I, I'm with some almanos and some yisomin with some orphans and some widows, and I try to help them to get a little money, and I'm writing letters of approval for this institution and for that, and then back to tshuva again. And everything I'm doing is just whatever stream I find myself on. It's just every single river is leading to this ocean of tshuva. It's my every thought that I have, is completely mirukaz, like tachana merkazi. It's centralized, right? Everything is centralized around this one thought of tshuva. So this is the line that I wanted to focus on now for a few minutes, just by going through some other sources that'll help us to understand this. Tshuva, says Rav Kook, just translate the words first. Chuva is tofez hachelek hayoser gadol b'torah ubechaim. If you would make a pie chart of what Torah is about and what life is about, chuva takes a big, if not the biggest, if not more than several of the other pieces put together, it takes a big chunk out of that pie chart in terms of what is life about, what is Torah all about. So we know that we know that the tariag mitzvos, the 613 mitzvos, are already from the time of the Gemara. The Gemara in Makos describes how the 613 mitzvos correspond to 613 body parts: 248 limbs, 365 different ligaments (sinews) that connect the different parts of the body, and those correspond to the positive and the negative commandments. So we find already. Um, in the Rishonim, that's in the Gemara, we find this already. In the Rishonim, we already find those who had a project to try to find what are the body parts that correspond to various mitzvos, Meaning, what exactly are the body parts that are, that are connected to this kind of mitzvah, that... And so we have, for example, in the Sefer Charedim, the Sefer Charedim is one of the Rishonim, who enumerates the 613 mitzvos, and he writes, Eluha mitzvos mitzvahs hashayichim yad ha these are the mitzvahs that correspond to the right hand. And these are the mitzvahs that correspond to the left hand. And these are the mitzvahs that correspond to the heart, and to the lips, and to the mind, and to the ears, and to the nose. And he goes through all of a Jewish person's life, and here are the different mitzvahs. And there are even people who, we won't weigh in on this right now, but there are different people who, skula. they have something that's wrong with their, uh, with their leg. So they'll learn the Sefer Charedam on that mitzvah, and they'll try to learn, like, how am I not using my leg properly, you know, in this kind of very one-to-one correlation type of way, but in a more general sense, we see that the Gemara already has this concept. And there's an amazing, if you've never seen it before, and even if you have heard it, it's Kedaita to look inside every once in a while to remind yourself this is the first time we're looking at it in a very long time. So the Brura Chav Chaim, writes in the introduction to Hilchah Shabbos that we know that the 248 mitzvot and the 365 uh, losases, that these correspond to the different parts of the body, and therefore, it makes a lot of sense that there are certain mitzvahs, so there just have to be, that there are certain mitzvahs, even though we don't say, like the Mishnah says in Pirkei you know, mitzvah kala chamura, we, we, we treat a what seems like a light or insignificant mitzvah as just as meaningful and just as uh, urgent as what seems to be a very large and weighty type of uh, ethical and moral norm. Uh, some... Wearing a, a, a garment of wool and linen and, and murder, for example. We, we try to treat them equally. But using this paradigm of looking at the mitzvot as being garments for the soul, which somehow mirrors the human body, right? the, the human body, it, it mirrors the soul. The soul fills the human body in such a way that we can describe the soul in these almost body-like parts so that we speak of the mitzvot as levushim, as coverings, as clothing for the soul in the same way that the body needs a covering, it needs clothing. So the soul also needs these various coverings. It makes a lot of sense, by the way, I'll just parenthetically, that Adam and Chava in Gan Eden didn't need clothing. They also didn't need mitzvahs. They needed one mitzvah. That's all they needed. Don't eat from the tree. And everything was kind of within that. That one mitzvah was the overarching covering of all of the other mitzvahs. In fact, some of the other minor mitzvahs that they did have for example, the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, which really, they're called the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach because they really begin with Noach, but six out of those seven were given to Adam as well. Don't kill, don't steal, Avodah these things. Chazal learn all of those out from the mitzvah not to eat from the Etzadas. They learn from each of the words in that Pasuk how each word in that Pasuk corresponds to a different one of those six out of the seven of the Sheva Mitzvot b'nei Noach. The only one that didn't apply yet was not to eat uh, live animals because other were forbidden from eating any meat whatsoever, dead or alive. So that wasn't necessary for them. But six out of the seven are learned from this one mitzvah because it was just like one big covering over them. It was one, but we have all these different parts, all these different mitzvahs which cover the various different limbs of the human body. So says the Mishnah Bura, listen carefully to this, he says, therefore, and he's writing this as the introduction to Hilchah Shabbos, therefore, why am I writing this book about how a person should observe Shabbos. He said, because it stands to reason that if the 248 mitzvos correspond to different limbs in the body and the 365 los correspond to different parts of the connecting pieces, the ligaments that connect the different parts of the body, so then it also stands to reason that just like in the body, there are vital organs. There are certain organs which, listen, nobody wants to lose a finger, God forbid, or even a whole leg, chalila, chalila. But a person can live person can live. We've all seen people, a person can live without a leg, a person can live without an arm. But when a person's brain or a person's heart or a person's lungs are in danger, kidneys, these are, there's, there's certain parts that are more vital. So says the Chavetz Chaim, Shabbos, I don't know exactly what vital organ it is, says the Chavetz Chaim. I, don't, I can't tell you one-to-one what vital organ it is. But Shabbos is like the heart of the Jewish people. It's like the brain of the Jews, like the lungs of the Jews, the oxygen of the Jewish people. And so, I need to write a special book. There's one whole chilek of Mishnah Berurah that all deals with Hilchus Shabbos, because in the same way you don't take chances, you know, if, if you're having a little bit of a problem with your with one of your, you know, fingernails, so you could you don't have to do you don't have to get so many you know friends involved to decide like whether you're going to go to this doctor or that doctor. But if God forbid you're getting a stint put in, you know, or you're having a heart surgery, you want to know that there's a person who knows what they're doing. And so when it comes to Hilchus Shabbos, we're dealing with a vital organ. And vital organs are just different. So why do I bring that up? I bring that up because it's interesting to think of tshuva, as Rav Kook is going to say in a moment, tshuva is tofeses hachil kagadol ayoser b'chaimu b'torah. And so I would like to suggest, and Rav Kook almost says this almost explicitly here, that for Rav Kook, in the same way that the spine, the spine of a human being is what connects all the different pieces, the brain and the heart and all the other limbs, are all connected through the spine. The spine, which is the support system for the skeletal structure of the human being, in, in a certain sense, tshuva is like the asod of everything. Without tshuva, we would maybe for one day try, and we would just be crushed by the weight of the obligation and the weight of our imperfection, and the weight of this general project that we've been talking about, which is the, the project of perfecting. Tshuva is what gives us patience. Tshuva is what gives us hope. And without chuva, we would just melt into a puddle of, of Yeyush. We would melt into a puddle of, of, of just complete giving up all hope. So, for example, we find that there are certain mitzvahs that the Rambam counted in the 613 mitzvahs, that the Ramban thought that the Ramban was off. Just to show you one more example of this, and we'll, we'll continue in the reading. The Ramban writes that the Rambam counts as mitzvah aleph, the first of the 613 commandments, is the mitzvah to believe in God. So the Ramban says, the mitzvah to believe in God is so foundational, it's so much a prerequisite to doing anything else, Yes, a person can mimic and parrot and do all these things, but the belief in God, the belief in a master of the world who not only created the world but is still involved in the world, in a certain sense, is it sits at the root of all the other mitzvot. So if there is no commander, then there can be no commandments. And so for the Ramban, the Ramban says, strike it. Now, do we mean to say that the Ramban doesn't think that it's a positive commandment to believe in God? No, he just thinks that it's so big that it cannot be commanded. It is a prerequisite to... to it, it's, it sits at the base of everything that it means to be, to be a, a Jew in the world. And, lastly, the Aruch HaSholchan, who was a contemporary of the Mishnah Brurah, the Aruch HaSholchan in the beginning of Hilchos Tefillah, writes that there is a similar machlokas between the Rambam and the Ramban about whether there's a mitzvah to daven, to pray. Is there a mitzvah to pray? So the Rambam writes unequivocally that there is a daily mitzvah to pray. A person has to daven once a day, every day. Three times a day is a rabbinic decree that came afterwards. But every day a person has to speak to Hashem. And speaking to Hashem means some sort of acknowledgement of the grandeur, the majesty of Hashem. Some sort of request. And some sort of thanks for all the things that got me to the moment where I'm able to even stand here and open my mouth. If you do those three things once a day, you've fulfilled the requirement of tefillah once a day. The Ramban says there is no such mitzvah. It doesn't exist. The Ramban. The Ramban. The Ramban says there's no such mitzvah. The Ramban writes, the mitzvah of davening is only specifically when a person finds themselves in a state of, like the pasuk says, if you find that, you are completely attacked and surrounded on all sides by, by enemy armies, or there is a famine, or there is some existential threat to your existence, right? There's, I mean, all existential threats, I guess, to your, to your existence. Right? If there is some threat to your life, then it is considered a positive commitment. But you wake up in the morning, drink your morning coffee, get on the bus or get in your car, drive to work. There's no need to, to, to dive in every single day. Rav has a very famous approach to this where he says that the Rambam and the Ramban essentially agree, but the Rambam thinks that the whole world is an existential crisis, like just waking up in the morning, you know, we're on a ball that's spinning through you know, the cosmos and there's comets flying around the other place. We're, we're in existential crisis just by dint of the fact that we're alive. The Aruch gives a little bit of a different approach. He says that perhaps the Machlokas between the Rambam and the Ramban is similar to the Machlokas about whether or not believing in God is a mitzvah. It's not that the Ramban thinks that it's not a positive commandment to, to, to pray every day. It's that the Ramban thinks, and this is the language that he's And this is where I got this, this language of the, the spine. It says it's that the, the, the mitzvah, the, the value of tefillah is so profound. It's like the spine of all the other mitzvos, Because in the same way that emuna is at the root of, so tefillah fosters emuna. One could argue that Shabbos also fosters emuna. Shabbos is Zeichel Lemaise Bereshesh, Zeichel Yitzias Mitzrayim. It's a reminder of the fact that Hashem created the world, and that He not only created the world, but He was involved in the poor, subjugated people who were you know, stuck in Mitzrayim, and He continued to have some sort of access to the affairs of what the goings-on of, the, of humanity. And so the shidra, the spine of the human being, seems to be this muscle. I guess you could even have different parts of the spine, that fits very nicely into these broader, larger type of under-foundational yesodos of, of what it means to be a Jew. And so for of Cook, Tshuva is on that list. He's on, Tshuva is on the short list of the vital organs. And so therefore, Rav Cook writes, With that introduction, we'll now be able to read more smoothly what going to is going to poetically describe for us. Is he basically saying, the can't spine, take one step can't difference. take one step you know, just this, tonight I was giving a shir between in Mitzvah Ramot um, that was in Hebrew and we were talking about uh, in a different sefer of Rav in the sefer Midos Raya the book of Rav Cook goes through different character traits Ava, Muna, Tzniot Yira, Pachad all these different kind of uh, character traits so we were talking about this notion that Rav Kook has, we'll get there because it's in Orsa Tshuva also, Rav Cook talks about the notion of doing tshuva when you make the right decision, which is, I'm saying this in response to what you said, is tshuva something which is like a, you can't get started without it. So Rav Kook says that you have two paths in front of you. You have two options. I mean, you always have two options, right? So th- there's at least two options in front of you. I'll give you an example. Perfect example. So anybody who's sitting here right now and enjoying this share, anybody who's watching the share later, is choosing to sit and to learn Torah and to think about the concept of tshuva, and therefore are not home or are not attentive to their husbands or wives, depending on which side of the chitz'ah I guess you're sitting on or who you are. So you're not attending to your husband or your wife or some other responsibility. And even though there is certainly a place to say that at least some of the time, choosing to engage in spiritual learning uh, takes precedence over, let's say, folding laundry. Sometimes you can do both at the same time, modern technology. So, yes, it's true that sometimes choosing, learning Torah or davening takes precedence over some other responsibility. But, says Rav and this is an amazing yesod, we'll we'll get there eventually, Rav says don't think for a second that if you made the right decision, that is to say, all things being equal, both in terms of the four standard halakim of the Shulchan Aruch and the fifth chilek of the Shulchan Aruch, which is just seichel and using your mind and making sure that this is, makes a lot of sense. And it's obviously in line with, with the Shulchan Aruch. Sometimes there's multiple ways and sometimes it's not addressed. There's a lot of situations that are not addressed in the Shulchan Aruch. So it crosses all the, you know, dots, all the I's, crosses all the T's, you're good. And, um, and now you've decided to do this proper activity. Cook says, don't think for a second that you don't have to do chuva for making the right decision. For making the right decision. Meaning, don't think, because if chuva means I'm a bad person, then that makes no sense. But for a cook, like we already described it, chuva doesn't mean I'm a bad person. Chuva means recalibration. And so if I choose, bonagir, to walk down the street, I'll give you another example. This is an example that I gave tonight. So I teach Baruch Hashem. I have the opportunity occasionally to teach young men and sometimes young women, sometimes older men and older women. So um, in yeshiva, at the end of, um, at the end of um, a long day of giving shirim, certainly at the end of a long week of giving shirim, it's not uncommon when I'm leaving yeshiva, the last year of the, of the week when I'm going home for Shabbos, to say good Shabbos to all the students and to give the Talmudim the Talmud a hug. Even in this day and age, you have to be more careful with these types of things. But to give each other the Talmud mahag, at least if it's someone that I know that, right? So I would never, I also teach in seminaries, you know, to young women. Even to finish the sentence is ridiculous. So if Cook says, but Ava, Ach, shalom Vareus, you know? Love every person you should be you should you should want a certain sense of camaraderie with everybody equally who cares what, who cares what side of the, the gender spectrum they're on mm-hmm. uh, Sir so cook says of course you can, you can give a hug to the, the but don't think that you don't have to do chuva every time you walk down the street and because you're in a certain neighborhood and because there's a different stadim in terms of the dinim, exactly how this applies. There's a halacha that sheila shalom is to, to for a man to a woman or a woman to a man. You can walk down the street and give... post scheme describe what is sheila shalom. You can walk down the street and say hello to a woman in a remote. Just, yes. And a woman can walk down the street and she can say hello to a man in a remote. This is perfectly normal. There's a discussion in the post-game, what is sheila shalom? Sheila shalom maybe is a formal kind of like bowing to each other, something we don't really have anymore even. But if you're in me'asharim, you know, and the, you know, the etiquette is somewhat different. So it could be that you walk down the street and you pass someone of the opposite uh, gender and, um, and you don't say hello to that person. If Cook said, maybe that's the right thing to do. Maybe. <laughs> maybe that's the right thing to do. But you also have to do chuva for not saying hello. Because maybe if you keep not saying hello over and over and over again without recalibrating, you're going to become a person who doesn't see value. You're going to think that the reason you're not saying hello is not because Sneos is such a holy thing but because uh, there's something ugly about the other side of of something, you know? Or a person decides to censor themselves from reading certain things or from listening to certain things. There's a whole host of things out there that a person could listen to. So a person decides, I'm going to listen to these types of podcasts, not listen to these types of podcasts. So maybe that's a holy decision, but you also have to recognize that that demands a recalibration. Am I curious enough about all different areas or am I kind of like pigeonholing myself into one particular area of study? Maybe there's a whole world out there. And even though I keep choosing correctly not to listen to certain things because it's foul for some reason or whatever, at the same time, I recalibrate towards, so this is the world of chuva that rift So you ask the question, this is a long answer to your question, but you ask the question, is this, you need tshuva because you can't get started without it? It's like, yeah, because even if you make the right decisions, you need tshuva. Because tshuva doesn't mean I'm bad. chuva means I need constant recalibration towards the tachlis, which is perfection, which is not something that comes easy in the world. And that's where I'm quickly going to get at the end of this introduction. He's going to say, nobody has ever done chuva fully in this world yet. Not even one person. So let's read inside a little bit more. It's important to try and know what perfection is then. Yes, yes, yes. It's an unreachable thing that we're striving towards. And when we get into a proper um, upward swing, then what happens is we move ever closer toward it so that every moment is a step closer and therefore there's the elation of, of kind of progress without that funny step that we sometimes have when progress doesn't happen or it happens sporadically where we'll have everything about it like that. I was talking to a good friend of mine, very talented person, um, really putting his eggs in the right baskets, you know, really investing himself in, in good things, um, and he was having like a hard day, you know. He's like, I have this project and that project and all these things, and they're all coming along to fruition. But you know, when you judge yourself by productivity, whatever it is—spiritual pro- productivity, phys- you know, material productivity—so then. It's never fast enough, you know, getting the next thing out and the high and the bump of, you know, finishing a project before the next one comes to a head. So tshuva is this process, this, it's like walking, you know, it's a talich of like similar to walking where while one leg is coming down, the other one is coming up. And it's this, it's learning to walk in a certain way of, it's what Rabbi Nachman described as, based on earlier, sermon, as ratzavishov this constant running and returning, the way that the malachim are described in the vision of Yechezkel and the Maizim Rekava, the loftiest Kabbalistic idea. The the malachim are running towards Hashem and then returning, recoiling. In fact, tefillah itself, the whole notion, according to some, of what it is that when we shuckle when we daven, Jewish people, they sway when they daven, when they pray. Why do we sway when we daven? Because there's this engagement and realizing that I have a lot more to do and I'm, whoa. Engagement and then coming backwards and recognizing that I'm not there yet. And when you get into that kind of sway, that meditative sway, you don't get stuck in the step down. It's in the same way that when you're climbing a ladder, to use another muscle, when you're climbing a ladder and you push your foot down, you are indeed putting pressure down, but you are climbing up simultaneously. Even in the moment that you're pushing down, you're climbing up. And so that dance of imperfection towards perfection, imperfection towards perfection, is this beautiful... Very complex thing that the Sefer kind of describes. Okay, so it's Taufezah Gadol Allah Kola Tikva Ha'ishios So now I'll move a little bit faster. Upon Shuvah is built all of the hopes of both Ishiot, of both individual people, and Siborios, also communities. Communities need Shuvah because people make mistakes and need recalibration in communities. Wouldn't you believe it? On the one hand, tshuva is a mitzvah which is the easiest of the easiest things to do. All it is, is just a change of heart. So much so that the Gemara says in Masechus Kedushan, a very famous, celebrated Gemara, that even if a Rasha gamur, a person whose whole life is steeped in making the wrong decisions, walks over to a young lady and says, you are hereby betrothed to me, Hareat Mekudeshisli, the Tabatsu Almanas, that I am a Tzadik Gamor. So the Gemara says the Kedushan is valid, even though it was Al Tanai, there was some sort of, uh, there was some sort of uh, small script on the bottom that said, if I'm a Tzadik Gamor, right? Because the Gemara says, because maybe he had like a, an about face, maybe he had a turnabout. At the, you know? And in that moment of that turnabout, so then he was a Tzadik Gamor. So on the one hand, Kal Kalos, On the other hand, says Rav Kock, One thought of tshuva is already tshuva. Because no one in the history of the world has ever fully actualized the power of tshuva. If it were true, then let me ask you a question. Adam HaRishon ate from the Yitzhadas, and we mentioned it a few weeks ago in the Shir. Afterwards, he ran into Kain. and he said, knew what happened. Kain said, I did tshuva. Adam said, wow, you did tshuva? I never realized tshuva was such a powerful thing. This is more shirlyom of Shabbos, you know. Shabbos, not from a lesson of Shabbos, like you we were saying Mr. Mish- Mishnah before. Shabbos, a lesson of Lashuv, of tshuva. So Adam did tshuva. The Gemara says Adam brought Carbonos, Adam, you know... Uh, engaged in a bunch of fasting. Adam Rishon uh, immersed himself in, in all types of rivers in order to perfect himself, in order to attain tshuva. So why wasn't he... Why well, wasn't that it? Right? Yeah, why didn't he go back into Gan Eden? Why, why, yeah. why wasn't that the end of the story? Right? And the answer is, because there's many, many different levels to tshuva. Because tshuva, on the one hand, is kal shabakalos. I hear her tshuva is already tshuva. On the other hand, tshuva is this full integration, this full synthesis of, of, this, of this sefer and more in learning how to walk this walk of Ratzav this meditative sway of forwards and backwards almost at the same time, almost at the exact same time. That is happening with such rapid succession that it's almost like it's happening at the same time. And so the, the growth. And the recognition that I am not yet there, the not yet there-ness, as well as the pushing forward, work in tandem, are a catalyst to one another. That's really what we're waiting for, and that has not come to actualization. We're going to tell, try to help us to understand how we do that. <laughs> a few more minutes. I find myself constantly thinking about Shuva and nothing else. A lot has already been written. Like I told you before, the marshal of Rav Tzvi Right? Somebody already described this bird. Somebody already took pictures of the bird. Somebody already, you know, showed us some of the witticisms that this bird has produced. This majestic bird of Tshuva. It's already been described. A lot's been written. A lot's But... We still have people who think of tshuva as this heavy, dark, self-flagellating thing, where a person just looks at tshuva with all the wrong eyes. Hasafrut, literature, literature, and this is so beautiful. Cook writes, literature which has its way of seeping into every crack and every nook and cranny of any place where there is song and life. There's a book about it. There's there's people are writing poetry about it. There's art that's suffused with you know these various different things. Wherever there's song, wherever there's life, wherever there's vitality in the world, there's there's literature is interested in trying to human beings want to describe and to capture this in in language. Lo Khadra When it comes to chuva, that great world of literature of the arts. Which descend and ascend into every area, every nook and cranny of life, and so on. They have not begun to dig even the slightest bit into this Otzer hachayim anifla hazeh, into this treasure house of life, this wondrous treasure house of life. Ozer hachuva, this treasure house of tshuva. Forget about writing it, they haven't even become interested in it. It's not even like, yeah, after I write about this, this, and this, I'd like to get to that. It's not even a, des- you know, there's no desire to even do it. Ladas is tchunaso, the <inaudible> arco to learn to understand what is its nature, what is its value. Afilum itsidoha puti, even in poetry. Right? What, the nature of, of poetry, people, why are people interested in poetry? Because poetry takes the ineffable and starts to make it effable, makes it something that a person gives verbiage, gives language to that, which is impossible to describe. By somehow mixing up the order and making it somewhat spoken in this twisted, threaded sort of form, I acknowledge the fact that I really can't say this properly, so I will say it in a way which is not saying it in this roundabout kind of way. So even if you want to say that tshuva is so high that maybe people aren't, people aren't even in there's no poetry about tshuva. Rav Kook at the back, in the end of Oros HaTshuva, has a few poems, a few songs that he wrote about tshuva. You know? It's the beginning. He's trying to... And if Kook is writing this not only because he's upset about it in this theoretical, but because Rav Kook was surrounded by people who the status quo establishment rabbinate had already written off as having left the path. These super talented people whose names grace a lot of the streets when we walk the streets, and we see Chernikovsky and Brenner and all of these street names that we see throughout Yerushalayim were these unbelievable writers and poets, these people who went to yeshiva and were given the same old, dry, not illuminated Judaism that robbed them of something Rav writes about in Or Torah about the din v'cheshbon that certain people are going to have to give because they lost out on these unbelievable souls, these huge souls. And from those who were the students of Rav Kook, who did have the proper education, we can understand what we missed out on those who didn't have this. And so Rav Kook here is also pleading with the artists and the writers of his generation saying, "Chever, come, let me show you this. And they were a little nervous of Rav Kook. Rav Kook made them a little uneasy. And we'll, well, maybe we'll we may not finish it. We might spend maybe 10 minutes at the beginning next time and we'll we'll jump into the safer but Why? because it was non-conformative Rev Cook made them a little nervous because Rev Cook was this he was this charismatic figure that just washed over them because he was so loving and he was so open and and yet so staunch and so rooted and was an expert in philosophy and art and you know Rev Cook describes how when he was stuck in the interim of in World War I, when he was stuck in London, he was stuck in Switzerland. So he went to go look at some of the art of Rembrandt and uh, described how he, he felt that if, Re- if Rembrandt would have had the proper, uh, you know, tutoring, and this is about a non-Jew, this is got cook in trouble, he, he could have been a prophet, Rembrandt, because he saw the way that he was able to see the world and capture it. He had this prophetic... Ability. Yeah, he had this eye to him that, and Rav Kook saw that, and that's by someone who, who wasn't from the you know from the from the tribes, you know. And um, so for the for those people who were in Rav Kook's company, who Rav Kook was desperately trying to show them this way of illumination, and to yes throw off the chains of exile that are giving them a, a version of Judaism which is choking them, you know, like the muscle that we that we sometimes describe. It's in a few different... I originally heard it from Shalm Shvadron. I, r- I just recently heard it from Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky also. Like a child, when they reach the age of three, some people have the custom of getting a, a haircut, up upshirin, and the child puts on tzitzis for the first time. So imagine that some people are wearing the same tzitzis when they're three as when they're six, as when they're seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty, thirty, forty years old. They're still wearing the same pair of tzitzis. So it would be choking them around the neck, you know, if they're wearing the same pair of tzitzis. But... When it comes to theology or the way we relate to prayer or to divinity or to torah we 're wearing the same sits as we were wearing since we were three years old, completely immature, unsophisticated hasn 't progressed hasn't and, and there 's there's a world of, of, of literature out there that can help us to progress and for us for cook Cook is saying we 're still holding on to a version of chuva, which is not since we were three years old, but this is this is thousands of years old, still, this level of tshuva. Our books of tshuva are from the Rambam and Rabbeinu Yona and, and that's not thousands of years, that's 400 years old. He still sees value in that, right? Of course, of course, because everything that he's writing is rooted in that. Mm-hmm. But if Cook is saying we need to, in the same way that the three-year-old tzitzis are identical in many ways, and almost always to the adult tzitzis, it has the same strings, and maybe they're slightly longer or bigger. Maybe the material is slightly augmented. Maybe you know there's some differences in size, but the form, is the, it's the same concept. And so of cook is taking this, which is why it's a beautiful muscle. He's taking the same material, and he's processing it through an update in 2,000 years of, for Rav what he sees as human evolution in a positive vein that also came with a lot of things that needs recalibration. So let's end with this. Um, we'll just finish this paragraph and we'll take 10 minutes at the end, uh, uh, at the beginning next time before we jump into chapter one. So if Cook says, I want to present and I want to know deeply all these different areas of literature, whether it's poetry or prose. Shumelavlev le'ein which has the ability to enhearten in a person, to wake up the heart. All the more so, nobody's written a book. That is, as I mentioned uh, two weeks ago, we broke last week, we didn't have a share, but two weeks ago I mentioned, Rav Cook said, I want this to be a practical guide. I want people to know what is step one, what is step two, what do we do? So, people aren't interested in the theoretical, poetic kind of underpinnings of tshuva. All the more so, nobody's been putting a finger to the pulse to Sort of feel the what needs to be done, and all the more so, our new life here that we have never tasted before. Here in a land where we have, at least in Rav Cook's vision, we're coming close he didn't ever live to see it, to a, a, a land where the Jewish people have some sort of self-sovereignty and where we're able to build bate medrash and, sh- and, and, and schools for children that could be built on these yisodos, that there could be curricula built. We never had this before. We always had people telling us what we have to study and what we have to teach our children. But now we have for the first time the opportunity to give this medicine to our children and to build our communities around these ideas and nobody's uh, doing anything about it. So in the last little piece, Sr. Cook says, I'm going to do it, but I'm terrified to do it terrified to death of it. Because who am I, says Rav Cook, who am I to pick up this, you know, this torch, to pick up this banner and to wave it around? It's something which is, uh, which is a big task, but something which, as I told you from the beginning of the share, for Rav Cook, it wasn't about having the strength to say. But at this point, it was weighing so heavy on him. He was watching his brothers and sisters just drop like flies when there's medicine sitting right there to show them the ore of Chuva, the light of Chuva, because for them, it was all darkness, or not all darkness, but for many people, it was very heavy. And so for Rav Kook, Rav Kook said, I don't anymore have the strength to remain silent. Amir Tzashem next week. We'll continue to hear the voice of Rav Kook shouting throughout the land in his sweet and gentle way. <laughs>